Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023. It is currently 11.04 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, in front of me is the book God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. And so that should indicate to you that we are going to continue our work on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We're calling this Law and Gospel Redo because we were working through the book God's No and God's Yes. We made it to thesis number 11 or 12. I felt like that I was kind of losing everyone, but I will, I stand by this and I am committed to this dogmatic declaration. I believe, I believe it to be factual. This is the most important series maybe that I, I, it is the most important series I have ever done because I believe the evangelical church at large has completely obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. And this has led to really, I hate to say this, it's really replaced the gospel with the law, but, and, and around it. So that's really what's happened. What people call the gospel today is really law, but they, ha, they disguise it as gospel. It's, it's law masquerading as gospel. And everyone thinks, oh no, we believe in the gospel, but you listen to them talk. And sooner or later, it sounds like, sounds very much like the law. That sounds very much like the law. And you are destroying justification. By faith alone, you really are, you're destroying justification by an imputed righteousness because you've so infused your gospel with the law that now it's law simply masquerading as gospel. Because I believe this is a, 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 a crisis. I believe this is a, an epidemic. It's a plague in the evangelical church, at least in the United States of America. That's why I believe this series is so important, and we've done so much work on this, and I'm hoping people are finding it, listening, thinking, meditating, and benefiting greatly from it. Now, remember, for what we're, for this redo that we're doing, this Law and Gospel redo, we're utilizing the program Issues ETC. It's a radio program, but it serves as a podcast. You should subscribe to it today. Wherever you get your podcast, look for Issues ETC. That's Issues ETC. Subscribe to it. They're doing their own series on the proper distinction between law and gospel, and we're utilizing their audio. Now, the problem is, you may see it as a problem. You may not see it as a problem, but they're a radio program. So they have commercial, 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 commercial. And these commercials means the segments are not that long. Sometimes they're only like five or six minutes, little segments. So when we review, we're only reviewing one segment at a time. So it's taking us a long time to work through this. It is making our reviews very short and more manageable. But and sometimes I'm just going to be honest with you. I'll listen to one of their segments with you because remember, I don't listen to these in advance. We're listening to them together because I like this to be very real, organic, not like a you know, something that's been rehearsed in a big production. But I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm done with one of their segments and I sit there and I begin to question, why am I doing this? But I'm like, I've committed myself to it. I have to because sometimes their segments leave. 
I don't want to be super critical, much to be desired. And sometimes you're like, what are you even talking about? I try to always make the most out of it, but I'm, sometimes I just feel like a little, so I never know. I, so I always get, I always get a little scared at this point because I'm like, Oh, is this going to be a good segment or is this going to be one of those segments that I'm like, well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Thank you for tuning in and feel like that I wasted your time. I don't want to waste your time. But just remember, if you feel like your time is wasted, my time is wasted because we both feel somewhat disappointed in maybe how they handled it. Now, I'm very worried about this segment because I feel, I feel, I feel, I could be wrong. My feeling is that we're about to listen to a segment that's going to raise so many questions about the doctrine of sanctification. Now, if you've been paying close attention to this podcast, you know we're doing a series on dispensationalism. I think that's been very good, and hopefully you'll go back and listen to that because it deals with hermeneutics and theological systems and how they can impact your ability to exegete Scripture. I think that is very, very, very important. So we've been working on that. We also have been working on a series we're calling Set Apart on the Doctrine of Sanctification. The reason we're studying the doctrine of sanctification is whenever you start talking about the proper distinction between law and gospel, almost instantaneously, someone's going to accuse you of being an antinomian, easy believism, cheap grace, and that you don't understand sanctification. And many cases when they say you don't understand sanctification and they begin to articulate their doctrine of sanctification, in many cases... What they do is they use the doctrine of sanctification and without even realizing it, they undermine the doctrine of justification by faith because of an imputed righteousness. And they almost turn justification into a into a justification based off an infused righteousness because they make the proof of justification sanctification. They're like, how do you know you're justified? Well, you're sanctified. If you don't experience sanctification, you are not justified. And I always want to point out, well, wait a minute. A justification that leads to sanctification, would that not be a justification based off an infused righteousness versus one based off an imputed righteousness? Because my justification is not determined by my sanctification. My justification is determined by the perfect righteousness of Christ that is accredited to my account. And whenever I try to fix this, it almost leads to, in some cases, people just cannot comprehend. So uh, that's why we started working on a, 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 you know, a series on the doctrine of sanctification to try to protect the doctrine of justification and to try to clarify and fix some of these misconceptions. Now, even though issues ETC is firmly committed to the proper distinction between law and gospel, I feel like even they at times inadvertently walk into this weird idea of sanctification, almost like, hey, if you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. Well, obviously you were never justified. I'm like, meaning then justification is not on the basis of what Christ did for me. Now my my justification is based off what Christ did for me, plus what I will or will not do, because if I don't do it, then that proves I wasn't justified. And I don't know how you can look at my practical actions to prove whether Christ's righteousness has been imputed to my account. There is no action I can do to prove imputed righteousness. So inadvertently, what you're doing is you're looking for practical righteousness to prove an infused righteousness, which is Roman Catholicism. It's very frustrating that when you start trying to talk about this, 
people people seem like because this language is so foreign to the average church member, which it shouldn't be, because this is historical theological language clearly used from the time of the Reformation forward. The fact that it's so foreign means that the minute you start talking, they immediately accuse you of being an antinomian. And and what I want to say is, okay, you can accuse me of antinomianism. I see you and I raise you because you're promoting Roman Catholicism. So I guess the issue is, would you rather be an antinomian or a Roman Catholic? <laughs> because, because you, and my thing is, I don't want to be an antinomian or a Roman Catholic, but I want to make sure we protect the doctrine that we are justified by faith alone because of an imputed righteousness alone. And so this, this distinction between justification and sanctification is very important because inadvertently, because we want people to live godly lives. We want to make sure people are pursuing righteousness. We begin to undermine justification. Because we almost create a sanctification that demands an infused righteousness versus an imputed righteousness. So my fear is we're getting ready to stumble into this kind of problem. I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm hoping I'm wrong. And hopefully then my entire introduction will be a waste of your time. It won't be a waste of your time because it does demonstrate why you need to listen to the series on sanctification as well. You need to listen to the the series on uh, dispensationalism. You need to continue to listen to this series on law and gospel. And you need to continue to listen to the series on sanctification. Basically, what I'm trying to do is you need to listen to everything we do. All right. But are you ready? I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. I don't know what's getting ready to happen, but this this is just my fear. Now, remember, we're in thesis number seven. All right. Before... I hit play. Let me read thesis number seven to you again. Again, this comes from God's knowing God's yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel. And the third place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first and then the law, sanctification first and then justification, faith first and then repentance, good works first and then grace. Meaning he believes that the Lutheran idea here is that there's a proper order. You get the order wrong, you destroy the proper distinction between law and gospel. And we have talked about that in detail. So now let's see if we can listen to this very short segment and gain some insight, but just be on the lookout for what they may do to the doctrine of sanctification. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're discussing the proper distinction between law and gospel, part seven of our series on that subject with Pastor Will Whedon, author of the book Celebrating Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. These books are published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or you can browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. What is this fourth perversion of the proper sequence that Walter wants to discuss? Well, he says the final perversion that he's going to treat occurs when good works get preached first and then grace the subjects mentioned in these four types, he says, they're all analogous. They all correspond to each other. And he says, look, one type is as bad as any of the others. But the golden text, keeping this one straight, is Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, right? 
By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Walter says, the apostle does not say, we must do good works in order to have a gracious God, but the very opposite. By grace, you're saved. By grace, you're created unto good works, so that when you've received grace, God creates you anew, and in that new state, you got to do the good works. And here we go. We stumble into the never-ending problem. The basic concept that is taught, and I know this is taught everywhere, and I know whenever I even raise my hand to ask questions about this system, that people will get defensive and they get upset with me, but I'm going to continue to challenge it, all right? And I challenge this based off the reality we all know exists, no matter how much we want to deny this reality. Here's the thing. In Christ Jesus, in Christ, positionally, I am a new creature. The old is gone. All has come new. In Christ, I am new. In practice, I am not new because I still maintain a sinful nature. I'm still a sinner because on one hand, Christians do this thing that no, 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 practically you're a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. Well, if that is true, then everyone should be able to reach sinless perfection. Nobody can reach sinless perfection. Why can no one reach sinless perfection? Because we're not a new creature and obviously the old isn't gone. We still have a sinful nature that prevents us from sinless perfection. Not only do we not get to sinless perfection, we don't even obey the basic commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You never do that. You never will do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. You will fall short of that continually. And here's the kicker. The Bible says, be holy as God is holy. You never have. You never will. You can't even get anywhere near that because these laws of God don't demand that you simply try. They demand perfection. You're never going to get there. Meaning you're in a perpetual state of sin, meaning you can't turn around and tell everyone, hey, you're a new creature, the old is gone, all is new, and now you will do these good things. I will argue even when you do these good things, if you take the good things you supposedly do and you're honest with them and lay them next to the law of God, even your good things are going to be proven to be nothing more than filthy rags because there's going to be some something tainting them because there are good works done by a person who still has a sinful nature and still has a sinful heart. So clearly, you can't teach this idea almost as if the old is completely eradicated because the old isn't. The best you can do is say when a person becomes a Christian, they now have, in a sense, two natures. They have a good one and they have the the sinful one, the bad one. They have these two natures and they're at war inside a person. Now, you would think, well, the good nature should be able to overcome the bad nature. But the reality is the bad nature keeps the good nature from ever getting to sinless perfection. So then you almost have to argue the bad nature is stronger than the good nature, which then leads to all kinds of theological questions. But everybody wants to teach this idea that, hey, now that you are a Christian, you will do these things. We should do these things. All right. I'm going to go to about I'm going to go to Ephesians 2. Because, and I know, and I look, I understand these, some of these verses 
raise serious questions. I completely agree with that. But we have to at least be honest with reality we all know we experience. So Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I believe that grace is not of you, and your faith is not of you. God has to grant faith. We cannot just believe on our own, and that puts me more in line with reform soteriology, which I very much am. But then I'll tick off reform people because I'm not ever committed to one particular team. But you get the idea. I do believe absolutely that the faith is not of us. God has to grant the faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by, it's not by, it's not by, uh, my grace. It's God's grace. It's not by my faith. God has to grant me the faith and it's not by works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. We should. We should. We should. I completely agree. We should. Will we? Not anywhere close. Not anywhere close. And for everything you say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm going to say, yeah, really look at you and compare it to God's law. And you're going to see how you fall short, you fall short, you fall short. And here's my thing. Here's here's where I have problems with. People will take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and say, well, how how do I know I'm saved? Because you'll do verse 10. No, it says we should do it. It doesn't say if we, because the minute you say, if you don't do this, it proves you're never saved. Then you just turn salvation into, well, a workspace system because I have to do something in order to prove that I'm saved. Because if I don't do this, I'm not saved. No matter how much you want to play games with semantics, you're still saying the the the, the works are required. I will say this. The minute you say, I have to do this to prove that I'm saved, you've destroyed the doctrine of justification because we are justified by an imputed righteousness. Whatever works you say I have to do in order to prove that I'm saved, I will say I have all of those works because I have the work of Christ imputed to my account. So whatever test you give me, I pass the test, not in what I practically do, but what it Christ did for me. That's the whole Doctrine of justification by faith alone because of an imputed righteousness alone. The, whatever the works you say proves I'm saved, Christ did them for me. That's what separates us from Roman Catholicism. All right, let's pick this back up. You can no longer remain in the domain and dominion of sin. He also turns to See, he says, he's quoting Walter there. You can no longer remain in the domain or dominion of sin. Now, stop right there. You can't. You're saved. You can no longer remove. You can no longer remain in the dominion of of sin. You, You can no longer be dominated by sin. I will say that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because you're still in the domain of sin. You're still being dominated by sin. You say, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You mean prove it? Be sinless. Well, I can't be. Well, why not? If something is stopping you from sinlessness, then it is dominating you. You're still in its domain. It's still the controlling factor. You're like, God says, be holy as I am holy. I'm going to do it. And you can't. Why can't you? What is keeping you from it? You're still under the dominion of sin. 
to some level. It is controlling. It keeps you. You say, well, I can't be perfect, but at least I can do this and this and this. Okay. So you're saying it gives you partial freedom. You're just partially not like you can't tell everyone you're no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin no longer dominates you. It just tells you you can't get to perfection. That sounds like it's still present. Still like seems like it's a controlling, uh, a controlling, uh, element inside of you. In fact, it seems it has you on a leash and it won't let, you can only go so far. It may be a long leash, but it's going to still control you. You're still under its dominion. I say we are still under its dominion until glorification when God removes this corrupt body and we no longer have a sinful nature. Now, practically, I'm still under the dominion of sin positionally, I'm absolutely set free. But churches constantly want to tell people that now you're free practically. Well, if I'm free, then I can be perfect. Well, you can't be perfect. Well, then I'm not free. (laughs) You can't have it both ways. So what people want to say is because you're justified, then you're no longer under the dominion of sin practically. Well, that would mean my justification is not based off an imputed righteousness. My justification would have to be based off an infused righteousness, which then would manifest itself in practical ways. Well, we are, we supposedly we're not Catholic. We refuse. We reject the infused righteousness concept. We hold to an imputed righteousness where I am not made righteous. I'm simply declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ is accredited to my account. All right, let's continue. To the beautiful passage in Titus 2. It's usually read at Christmas time. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live righteously, soberly, and godly in this present world. Walter concludes out of that. So here we're told that grace is brought to us first. And then that this grace begins a work of education upon us. We're placed under the divine pedagogy of grace. The moment a person accepts the grace which God has brought down from heaven, that grace begins to train him. The object of this training is to teach him how to do good works, how to lead an upright life. You know, we could almost say it teaches you how to be conformed to the very image of Christ himself. That's what the grace of God in Christ moves you towards, that you might be like your Savior like that. Okay, now let's go to Titus 2, 11 through 12. Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We should. Hey, look, I do agree that when we, when we are saved by God's grace and we see his goodness, his holiness, his mercy, it should teach us to do these things. But see, we're being told to do these things. Guess what that is? That is law. And guess what you're going to see? I've received God's grace and I know that I should deny ungodliness. I know that I should. See, salvation is a, we do believe in a change of mind. My mind, I should deny ungodliness. But you know what? No matter how much I try to deny it, It's going to be present in me, whether in thought, word, deed, feeling, desire. It's going to show up, 
right? Um, and I should deny worldly lust. I should deny worldly lust. How much of your life are you controlled by lust, worldly, fleshly lust? I guarantee you there's, it, it manifests itself over and over and over and over and over. We should live soberly. We should live soberly lives. We should live righteously and godly in this present world. We should do all of those things, but we're going to fall short. Grace says we should do it. The reality is we're going to see that we continue to fall short of it. And so our only hope is to flee back to the grace that saved us because we're saved by grace alone, because of Christ alone, because of an imputed righteousness alone. And then it says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know why you're going to keep looking for your blessed hope? Because you're going to realize you keep falling short of verse 12 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Oh, I do believe that should happen. But in practice, it's we're going to fall short over and over and over again, which is going to have to drive us right back to God's grace. But that grace should then motivate you to pursue godliness and righteousness. You should. You just have to realize you're and any, if any reasonable expectation is going to be, I'm not going to pull this off. And then that should convict you to drive you right back to the grace, which then should motivate you to pursue, hopefully, righteousness and godliness. And Todd, I think this is just of enormous importance. Do you remember when we were young pups just out of the seminary? It was very, very popular to say that a sermon absolutely could not end with an exhortation to good works without thereby negating and failing the sermon, you know, the, the, the preaching of the gospel itself. Everything that you've given in the preaching of the gospel, you've taken away by then mentioning good works. You remember that? Remember those days? I remember those years of the first <laughs> 10 years of my ministry. Yeah, Well, too. maybe 20 years of my ministry, if I'm being honest. I firmly held to that principle that if you uttered one syllable of the law after the gospel was proclaimed, you just threw everyone back into despair and ruined everything. Right. And is it not clear from Walter's example here that he seems to think that the proclaiming of the exhortation to good works always has to come on the other side of the preaching of the gospel? It's not for Walter simply putting that under the category of law. It is putting it as Dr. Nagel would say, there is a gospel's use of the law. And this is the gospel's use of the law to grab hold of it with the third use of the law, encouraging and exhorting us to live our lives in conformity with what Christ has revealed to us because we have been forgiven and made new in him. Now, I got no problem using the law to encourage good works. I got no problem, but you have to be very careful not to then use it to encourage good works and then make it a test to prove justification because your good works cannot prove a justification based off an imputed righteousness. So that's my first issue. You cannot use this to challenge someone's salvation because their salvation is dependent on what Christ did, his good works. So I think that's the major distinction. And then, but you have to be very careful to acknowledge, hey, because of what Christ did for you, this is how we should live. This is what we're called to do. We should say that, but there has to be an understanding in everyone's mind that we are going to fall short of this. There has to be an acknowledgement of that. 
Because if you don't acknowledge that, everyone will pursue thinking they can do it. But the reality is they're going to fall short over and over and over again. And that's just the reality. Walther, I don't get too far ahead, but Walther actually, to drive this point home, says, look at the book of Romans. And he gives a brief outline, which is there's some chapters of law, some beautiful chapters of gospel, and then the last chapters of the thing are nothing but sanctification. And he says, I'm just going to quote him, beginning chapter 6, the apostle treats nothing else than sanctification. And here we have a true pattern of the correct sequence. First, the law, threatening men with the wrath of God. Next, the gospel, announcing the comforting promises of God. This is followed by an instruction regarding things we are to do after we have become new men. I wish I would have read that. I know. <laughs> I, I have all this highlighting in my old copy of Law and Gospel, but that was not highlighted until I ran across it again today. But see, once again, uh, Walther's assumption is that we become good, that we become new creatures, new men, good men. No, we become good positionally. We become new positionally. We are not good and new practically. The old is still very much there. And the old has so much power that no one can be perfect and no one can keep the law perfectly. Right there should tell you, well, wait a minute, then I got to be very careful when I talk about, hey, hey, here's the law condemns you. Here's the gospel that saves you. Now you magically have the ability to do this because you know inadvertently you're going to come back in and go, well, 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 I mean, you don't have the, you don't have the power to really do it. I mean, you can do it, but you can't, you can't, yeah, that will lead people to total despair and thinking Christianity is does not work. You know what? I didn't have it highlighted in mine either. I am guilty too. Yeah. I think that's an absolutely stunning thing. And he says that uh, this outline in Romans is actually the uh, – the, the the book because Romans contains the Christian doctrine in its fullness. It's the, like the quintessential of the epistles. He says, "So look at this ordering." But if you look, took and look at all of Paul's epistles, isn't that kind of the same order he uses for most of them? He begins with the doctrinal statements, and he usually wraps up with exhortations toward living. Maybe not so much in First Corinthians the same way that he does in most of the others. But in the others, you see this really clear pattern of gospel proclamation followed by the paranesis. You know, you're going to be encouraged to be doing these good works. And I just want to throw in that if one were to peruse the English translations of Walther's many sermons, mm. you would find he assiduously follows this pattern. Himself. Oh, absolutely. In fact, we mentioned it earlier. I should mention it again because I really want to encourage people to get it. If, I mean, yes, it's great to have a copy of the proper distinction between law and gospel. By all means, have that on your shelf. But you really want to have God grant it, which is a collection of translations of Walther's sermons arranged according to the church here for each day. And provides you a powerful insight into how Walther regularly preached, how he practiced what he's talking about in theory here to the seminarians. And always, always, if you notice a pattern in Walther's preaching that doesn't fit how you're understanding his thesis, it's probably your understanding of the thesis that's kind of gone wonky. Or it's me just... 
I don't have to follow his thesis. I don't have to follow his application of his thesis. I can challenge it. Now, I, I, I do have the copy of the book, God Grant It, right here. A listener sent it to me. It's absolutely amazing. I have it right here on the desk. So we will try to use some of God Grant It, um, you know, some today's focuses, or we'll use it uh, at some point to see this. But the point is, is once you understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, I'm not, and see, this is where it gets me in trouble. I'm not bound by Walther. I'm not bound by any system. That's, I mean, I've been talking about that so much that what happens, you always have to pick a side. Okay, I'm going to be on the Lutheran side about law and gospel. So now I have to follow the Lutherans exact. I don't have to follow. I'm not bound by a system. I'm supposed to be bound by scripture. I do believe the proper distinction between law and gospel is the only way to keep the Bible from completely being, you know, a book of contradiction that cannot ever be reconciled. Irreconcilable contradictions. I, I, I think you have to have a proper distinction between law and gospel. But when you inadvertently give this proper distinction between law and gospel, and then almost turn around and say, but, 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 you, you can do all of this because now you're completely transformed and you're completely new is then taking what I believe is true of me positionally, trying to make it true practically, and then if I don't manifest enough of this supposed newness, then turn around and say I'm not saved, which then destroys the doctrine of justification by an imputed righteousness. So it maybe I just disagree with Walther's application of his own thesis. Maybe I'm going to stick more with the thesis that he's given instead of his I think maybe incorrect application. And I think the reason people struggle with this is it's inadvertently, we, we are law-minded people. It's in our nature. So when you hear the proper distinction between law and gospel, and you hear this idea of a gospel where you're saved by faith alone because of an imputed righteousness, the end, you're like, but, 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 we have to do something. We have to, you can't just say no. And you want to start making all of these ifs and buts and how, no, you got to, because well, you're law-minded, and that's fine. You Be law-minded. You just may want to admit that you don't believe in a doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone because of an imputed righteousness alone. You believe in an infused righteousness, and you believe if that infused righteousness is not seen, then it proves I was never justified. Okay, and then you can leave your church and go back to a Roman Catholic church because you'll be more at home because you're believing Roman Catholicism whether you want to acknowledge it or not not Walters. So he, he's gotten us to this beautiful point where he just says, genuine sanctification, man, it's what follows justification. Genuine justification is that which comes after repentance. In that one sentence, he's linked together. So you're going to have the law that calls to repentance, the justifying gospel, and then the call to sanctification in the life of the Spirit on the power of that justifying gospel. And then he gets into what I think is one of the most amusing parts of this. Okay, before he gets to this amusing part, I do have that sentence here by Walther and God's no and God's yes. That is genuine sanctification, which follows upon justification. That is genuine justification, which comes after repentance. Now, when you say genuine sanctification follows, when you say genuine sanctification follows justification, you see what happens here. You're going to say, oh, it's got to be a genuine sanctification. And this inadvertently happens. Without a genuine sanctification, then you did not have a genuine 
justification. Well, then how am I going to judge my genuine justification? Based off my genuine sanctification. How do I judge your general sanctification? By what you do and don't do. Guess what you've just inadvertently done? No matter how many games you want to play with the English language or any other language, you now just said, if I don't do, I'm not saved. So then my salvation becomes based off what I do. And don't you say, no, 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 no. We're just saying that if you're truly saved, you will do this. And you're also saying, if I don't do that, I was never saved. Meaning I have to do it in order to be saved. And not only that, whatever you say sanctification, whatever you think genuine sanctification is and what it entails, guess what? Whatever you say sanctification demands, I will say was provided for me in Christ Jesus, who is my sanctification, according to 1 Corinthians 1, I think chapter 1, verse 30, he is my sanctification. So in Christ, not only am I justified, in Christ, I am perfectly sanctified. Now, should all of that positional reality, should all of that grace, should all of that mercy, should all of that lead me to a sense of overwhelming gratitude that I want to pursue godliness? It should. But in the pursuit of it, there has to be an acknowledgement of a reality. I cannot get to sinless perfection. I cannot even get close to it. And my pursuit will be met with a reality that I have a sinful nature and I'm going to fall short. So my hope is my justification. My pursuit is my sanctification. But I do not look for hope in sanctification. My hope is in justification. entire lecture, he decides to pull up some sermon outlines that he says, these are incorrect. And he says, I'm going to select crass examples. I wonder if that means these were actual sermons that he had turned into him for homiletics that he had to critique. In those days, of course, it was very big that you had to outline your sermon. That was just part of, of regularly writing a sermon was to outline it. So, he starts digging into these. First subject, the way of salvation. It consists of, one, faith, two, two repentance. He's like, ah, that would make you a really good antinomian or a herrenhooder. It would not make you a good Lutheran because the proper order obviously is if you're treating the way of salvation, you need to speak first about repentance and then about faith and then maybe also about good works on the other side of that. If the subject is good works by themselves, he says, this would be a bad, this again, these are bad examples. We shall see wherein they consist that they must be performed in faith. He says, in such an outline, you would state what good works are without having spoken about faith. A description of good works requires a statement that they're performed by believers, Otherwise, you would have to formulate your judgment on good works from the law. And that's wrong. And this is such a key point. For viewed in the light of the law, any good work, even of a Christian, no matter how good it may appear to human beings, is damnable in the sight of God. Let me read. Oh, that is so good. And that's, that's, that is so important. Any good work. Any good work, even performed by a believer, 
when looked at in light of God's law is damnable. It will, because your good work will never measure up to the requirement of the law that you cannot forget that. Now he's going to repeat it. Read it again. Viewed in the light of the law, any good work, even of a Christian, no matter how good it may appear, is damnable in the sight of God. I remember hearing our dear Dr. Nagel sort of paraphrase that with, what makes a good work a good work? The fact that God forgives it. That's what makes a good work a good work. Oh, wow, that is so good. What makes a good work a good work is that God forgives it. What makes a good work a good work God forgives it. That tells you, that is code for, even your good works are nothing more than filthy rags. My good works have to be forgiven because my good works are corrupted and my good works have sin mixed in. Your good works require forgiveness. Your good works require the blood of Christ. Your good works require the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's why you cannot look to your works for anything. They have to be forgiven. The works of Christ don't require forgiveness because they're perfect. So if you put the order that this is what they are and this is how they are to be done in faith, you've reversed it. You need to start out with to be a good work has to be done by the faith, which clings to the justification that's yours in Christ, because then even the imperfection and sin in your good work will be forgiven. And then you can talk about what they consist of in accordance with God's own commands. He takes a third subject. He says, so let's talk about prayer. You're going to preach about prayer. He says, one, true prayer is based on the certainty of our being heard. And two, true prayer consists in faith. He says, According to this outline, the first part of your sermon would be entirely wrong. (laughs) He doesn't even elaborate anymore. He's just like, you see this? You don't start out with you and what you do and your certainty of being heard. You need to start out with why we should be confident in prayer at all. Lay the promises of God on the people concerning prayer. Then you can get to, because God's not a liar, you can be certain that your prayers are heard by him. He moves to a fifth subject. Promises and threatenings in the Word of God. First, promises. Second, threatenings. He says, when I hear these two parts of the sermon announced, I say to myself, well, the preacher's going to first come for me, and then he's going to throw rocks at me, causing me to forget everything he said at the start. No, you must first come down on your hearers with the law, then bind up their wounds with the divine promises. When a preacher concludes his sermons with threatenings, he has gone far towards making that sermon unproductive. And do you see, I mean, Todd, if you think about Paul's paranesis in the the epistles, is it not clear? Is there a tone of threatening running through them? I don't hear it if it's there. I, I do not hear that as a threat. When I hear the paranesis, I'm hearing him saying, and this is how we get to live in Jesus. That's the whole issue. If you make good works a threat, you destroy the gospel. I mean, you, you're, you, and this is what happens in evangelical churches all the time. Uh, yes, you're justified by grace alone, by an imputed righteousness alone. However, 
you have to do this and this and this, because if you don't do this, you prove you were never saved. You just made threatenings. You've given me the comfort of the gospel. You've then stolen the comfort from me by telling me I must do this and this and this, or I'm not saved. I got no problem calling people to say, we should do this. We should feel guilty when we fall short of this. This is what God calls us to do. This is the life we are called to live. And when we fall short, our only hope is the imputed righteousness of Christ. But you cannot add threats to it. This is the form of our life that it takes in him. And he holds that out to his people, describing it so beautifully. We're talking about law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon, part seven of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Whedon is host of a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. And there we finish that segment. Now, of all the segments we have done, of all the segments we have done, we may have just heard one of the most profound concepts. And well, we've done well over a hundred hours of teaching on this. Everyone needs to write this concept down. You may want to rewind this and go back and find where the quote is given directly. I tried to scribble it down, so I may not have it down perfectly, but everyone needs to write this down. You need to put it on your refrigerator. You need to put it everywhere you can find it, on your phone, and you need to read it about a hundred times a day. All right, here it is. What makes a good work a good work? God has forgiven it. When you say, I have to do this and I have to do this in order to prove that I'm saved, I will say, you can tell me I have to do it, but you know what's going to make this work good? God's going to have to forgive even the good thing you're telling me to do, because even the good thing I do is not that good. It is corrupted. It is tainted. It is messed up because it is flowing from a sinful heart. Even a Christian's good work, it needs to be forgiven. When was the last time you asked God to forgive you for your good works? <laughs> you probably never have because you think your good works are so much better than they actually are because you are like, you know, thank thee God that I'm not like these other people because I do all of these good things, demonstrating that you're doing the good things from a sense of pride, a sense that it somehow makes you right with God. Your, your whole good works are, are wrong. They're, they need to be forgiven. My only hope of salvation, if you say, well, you have to do this in order to prove that I'm saved. It won't be on what I do, because anything I do would have to be forgiven anyway. I will point you to what Christ did and say, those works were imputed to me. So whatever test you give me, Christ passed the test. Therefore, I've met your requirement. Now get out of my face. There you have it. That is a profound, profound concept. I want you to think about it. I want you to meditate on it today. I want you to just go over it over and over and just think about it. Hey, your good works require the forgiveness of God for them to be good. Because in and of themselves, our good works are tainted. All right, so much more I want to say, but I will stop right there. We only have one more segment left. We'll try to do that maybe today. In the meantime, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I knew we were going to get into this connection between justification and sanctification. I could feel that it was coming. 
So I was right in my introduction and, uh, well, we'll see how they conclude this in our next episode of our ongoing series on understanding law and gospel. Hopefully you're finding this to be beneficial and helpful. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.